Okay, welcome everyone, and why don't we just go ahead and uh, get started. Thanks so much for coming out. It's windy and it's break, and so it's really nice to see people come out for this talk tonight. Um, this talk is part of the public lecture series at Princeton University. Uh, before I say anything else, I ask you to please set your telephones and other devices to a setting that makes me unaware that you have them and makes our speaker unaware that you have them. And that includes our speaker. Okay, sorry, good. All right. So um, I'm very pleased to introduce tonight's speaker. Uh, my name is Sam Wong, and I am chair of public lectures. And I'm also with the departments of molecular biology and the Princeton Neuroscience Institute. And all three of those entities are hosting tonight's lecture. And it's a real pleasure. Um, our guest tonight is Professor Martin Chalfie from Columbia University. And this is a talk that is co-sponsored by, the, as I said, the Committee on Public Lectures. Uh, and you can read about our lectures at lectures.princeton.edu. And in the coming semester, we have lots of interesting talks, including uh, Anna DeVere Smith, John Waters, um, Eric Lander, and, uh, and some other pretty interesting people. So, uh, so I'm very pleased to kick off the coming months with Professor Chelfie. Now, tonight's lecture is part of the Lewis Clark Venuxum series, which was founded in 1912 with a bequest from Lewis Clark Venuxum of the class of 1879. And uh, Mr. Venuxum was in insurance and specialized in insurance law, but he wanted this series to be uh, dedicated in, mo in large part to science. And so we have a large series of uh, scientific lectures over the years. And just to give you a sense of who's spoken in this series in the past, uh, it's included Edwin Hubble, James Conant, Carl Sagan, uh, Doug Melton, Marsha Angel, and uh, this coming semester, we're going to be having Eric Lander, who's uh, president of the uh, chair of the President's Council on Science and Technology. Now, Martin Chalfie, our speaker tonight, is chair and professor of biological sciences at Columbia University. In, 19, in uh, 2004, he was elected to the National Academy of Sciences, and he shared the 2008 Nobel Prize in Chemistry with Osamu Shimomura and Roger Chen. Without saying too much, uh, Professor Chalfie's career has taken many interesting turns. I'll just say that his accomplishments are numerous and varied and range from the study of neurotransmitter secretion from single cells to his major interest, understanding how animals sense their environment by touch. His life even includes a period of uh, non-scientific activity, and I find his online biographies to be extremely interesting. I encourage you to read them. And uh, there was a time when he decided against a career in science. During part of that time, he sold dresses, and he also taught high school. And it just goes to show how many ups and downs life has to offer, even the most successful scientists. And I think it's really important. At dinner, we were talking about uh, the lessons of um, the kinds of things that happen in life. And I find that, uh, that hearing about things that didn't really quite go as planned to be especially inspiring. And finally, I'll just say that he's also a fairly accomplished guitarist. And I first met him uh, in an event in which he began talking by playing the guitar. And unfortunately, tonight's format does not involve a guitar performance but it just goes to show how varied his interests are. Uh, and he learned about the guitar from his father, who was a great lover of music. Now, tonight, Professor Chalfie's topic is Green Fluorescent Protein Lighting Up Life. Professor Chalfie. Oh, I'll go up first. Please. Thank you, Sam. Very nice introduction. And didn't say all the embarrassing parts of the biography. That was very nice. I appreciate that. Um, so I'm, I'm going to talk about uh, GFP, talk a little bit about how uh, science, at least the way my science seems to have gone, uh, and maybe some lessons that I've learned from it. Uh, as Sam said, I uh, was a co-winner of the Nobel Prize. 
This somewhat changes one's life in very strange ways. One of the very first things that happened once I got the prize is the people in my lab were extremely excited about this. It, not so much that I won the prize, but they were extremely excited because when they looked me up on Google News, in this section here, I, I made it on the list with 17 Chinese and uh, Britney Spears. And so, so they were very happy at this and, and, and exceedingly proud. Of course, I then disappeared from sight soon after that. Uh, and then a, another strange event happened last summer. Every two years, I work on a very small worm. I'll show you a picture of this worm in a little bit. But every two years, we have a meeting of all the people in the world that are interested in this small worm. There's about 2,000 of us. And I was walking down the aisles of all the posters that were on display of the different scientific results. And I had forgotten until I turned the corner, but there was actually one aisle that was reserved for all the people in the art competition. We have a worm art competition. I know that sounds a little strange, but I actually like it until, uh, and, and some of you may have seen uh, this uh, rather famous uh, Shepherd Fairy poster. Uh, what actually won that year was this poster, uh, <laughs> made by two postdocs from uh, Harvard, which I was sort of amazed at. So it, it, there's been a lot of very strange consequences. So the story of why I was interested in GFP, and I particularly like the fact in this picture that they didn't have the uh, campaign button, but a little jellyfish here, and you'll see why in a moment, why that's particularly nice. I should also say something about the, uh, the color code that I used in recognizing the people that really did the work. Uh, collaborators are in blue, uh, people from my lab are in red, and people that did something that I'd like to take credit for are in black. Uh, but didn't have anything to do with. In any case, um, for many years I've been interested in the problem of how we sense our environment, particularly how we can detect me uh, various mechanical or physical perturbations in our environment. We have, biologists know a lot about some of our senses and how they work at a molecular level, so we understand how light is perceived, because of the molecule rhodopsin that's in the retina. And we also have a very good idea of the molecules that are needed to detect chemicals. So we know the receptors that allow us to detect smells, various odors. We know, how, uh, we know what the molecules are that allow us to taste. We know the molecules that allow us internally to detect uh, neurotransmitters and hormones. So we know how chemical signaling works at a molecular level. But we have a whole variety of senses, some of which are described here. The sense of touch, balance, hearing, proprioception is where our limbs are in space. Also the stretch of our muscles. All of these senses work because something is pushing or pulling on cells in our body and that leads to a change in the electrical signal in the nerve cells so that we can detect the outside world. All of these have also one thing in common and that is we do not know how they work at all. So this is one of the big unknowns about sensory biology, is how do we detect those sound waves that uh, hit our ears, or how do we uh, are able to sense that we're touching something? We have no idea about the molecules that are needed for that. And so this is the problem I've been addressing for all the time 
since my postdoc uh, quite a number of years ago. Now it's about 30 years. And I've been using this collaborator, a small worm. The adult is only a millimeter long. This is actually a newly hatched animal, which is only about a quarter of a millimeter, so about a hundredth of an inch. And this animal, Center of Diacelians, is an animal we know an enormous amount about. This is the first animal to have its entire genome sequence. We know from people following every single cell division from the fertilized egg all the way up to the adult, how every cell is produced in this animal. We have the entire cell lineage. Someone has actually gone and taken this animal and sliced it like a salami and reconstruct, blown up the pictures for the electron microscope and looked at every single nerve cell. So this is the only animal that we know how all the nerve cells are connected in the nervous system. We don't understand how it works, but at least we have the beginnings of an understanding for this. And uh, among the 302 nerve cells in the nervous system of the animal are the six that are diagrammed here. These are the cells that detect touch. And most of the time in the lab, we have been interested in trying to understand how these cells do sense a touch stimulus. How do you test touch in an animal that's a, a quarter of, a 1 25th of an inch long? As an adult, we take an eyebrow hair, we glue it to a toothpick, and tickle the animal in the tail. It goes forward, tickle it in the head, it goes backwards. And we look for mutants that don't have this behavior. So we find a mutant as an animal that doesn't respond when we tickle it. We do a little more than this because a dead animal also won't respond. So we need to actually go and look for an animal that has normal movement but can't be stimulated to go forward. And we know that that's mediated by these cells. And then we asked for those, we looked at those mutants, used that to clone the genes involved, and asked how is it that these cells came about and what's needed in these cells for them to be able to act as touch sensors. Now, I started this work as a postdoc in 1977. And the main point that I'm going to get to in this story is uh, a little bit later in uh, 1989. Uh, when inspiration struck. Uh, let me actually say a little bit about what we know about this and about the genes here. We actually have cloned many of the genes and this seems to be the business end of the sense of touch. It's a series of proteins in the membrane of the animal and we've been able to show that this complex is in fact the sensor. So it has enabled us to actually find the first animal sensor of a mechanical touch. So we're quite happy about that. <coughs> Um, but that's not the main point of the article uh, of, this, of this talk. Uh, when I was doing this work, we wanted first to ask a very fundamental question. The fundamental question was, okay, we found a gene that seems to be important for touch. Is it actually made, is it produced, the protein for it, is it actually produced in the correct cell? That's the first thing. Is it made in the right place? And to do that, in 1988 or so, we had three different methods. We could use an antibody directed against the protein to show that it was in the correct cells. We could look at the RNA in the cells and see if that was, if the RNA was in the cells, and here it is in the correct cells. Or we could use a reporter system that would make, that would allow the gene to turn on, instead of the normal protein, the protein for this enzyme, beta-galactosidase, and then using an appropriate substrate, 
Wherever this was made, we get this nice blue color. And you can see here it's in the six cells that we expected it to be in. Now, all of these procedures of being able to look where a gene was turned on required us to do several things. We had to kill the animals, prepare them, fix the animals. Um, and we had to fix them in a way that nothing would move around, so that everything was in the right place. Then in order to get the reagents in to allow these reactions to take place, we had to permeabilize the animals, poke holes in it so we can get things into it. And then we had to do the chemical reactions or whatever to be able to get this final result. So we could see the result of which genes express various things, but it took a lot of time and it was static because we were looking at dead tissue. And it's at this point that inspiration struck. Now, People have different ideas about what inspiration is. My, the best example I know about inspiration is in this cartoon. Cambridge, 1953, shortly before discovering the structure of DNA, Watson and Crick, depressed by their lack of progress, visit the local pub, I'll have a double Felix. <laughs> well, with me, it wasn't at a pub, although that would have been nice, but rather at a, uh, uh, I, in my own department, we had a seminar series and inspiration came through this man, Paul Brem, who came to give a seminar. So I actually know when the inspiration struck me. It was a little afternoon on Tuesday, April the 25th, 1989, because that's when he gave his seminar. And in his seminar, he was talking about something. Actually, I can't tell you what he talked about, because his introduction got me thinking about something else, and I never listened to his seminar. But the introduction was spectacular. And in that introduction, he talked about the work on a jellyfish called the Quaria Victoria that was done by this man, Osama Shimamura. He actually did this work when he was here at Princeton working with Frank Johnston. They had gone to Friday Harbor Lab in Washington State to ask a very interesting question about this jellyfish. This is one of the organisms, like uh, fireflies, glowworms, bioluminescent bacteria, fungi. This is an organism that produces light. And they wanted to know what the chemical reaction was that produced light. And so Osama Shimamura started looking at that. Let me just stop for a second to uh, make a plea. If you have a little extra time, I think it would be about 29 minutes, I think it takes, I would suggest that you go online to nobelprize.org and listen to his 29-minute lecture uh, for the Nobel Prize. Uh, he went through an amazing series of events to do the work he was able to do. At the age of 16, people came to him and said, you can't go to school anymore. We want you to quit going to school. You have to now start working in a factory, and the factory you're assigned to is not here in this city, but over the mountains in the adjacent valley. And you have to go right away, go to that valley and start working in that, that factory. That happened to be 1945. The city was Nagasaki, Japan. And because it was in that valley next door, when the atomic bomb went off, he saw the blast. But he was saved because he had the mountains as a barrier. He went in the next day and saved people and tried to was involved in the rescue effort. 
talks about his mother scraping away black tar from his body in the process of the uh, rescue effort. He then couldn't go to school because, of course, the school was destroyed. The college was destroyed. Eventually, they opened up the pharmacy school, and he went to that. And then after the pharmacy school, he went to graduate school. And in graduate school in Japan, they gave him a very nice project. Uh, they told him that the project was very nice, but they also told him the project had already destroyed several graduate students because they couldn't do it. And it was an impossible project, and it shouldn't be able to be done. He did it. It was to find out why a crustacean called Cyprinina was producing its light reaction, because this was a crustacean that was bioluminescent. And he was able to figure it out, and that got him the invitation from Frank Johnston here at Princeton to come here and start working on the jellyfish. So they go and they work on the jellyfish. They collect lots, thousands and thousands of jellyfish. And in the course of that, he's trying to extract the protein to find out what that protein is that's causing the light reaction. And he fails, and he fails, and he fails. It doesn't work. So finally, I think somewhat in desperation, it's late at night, dark outside. He gives up for the day. He takes all the protein fractions he's been studying. They're no good. He throws them in the sink. The sink has seawater in it. It has jellyfish parts in it. That's it for the day. He turns off the light, and he's just about to leave when he turns around and looks at the sink, and it's glowing brightly, a beautiful blue color. It turned out that the reaction, he then purifies the protein very quickly. It's a protein that he called a quarren after the uh, jellyfish. And he finds out that the reason he never could get it to work is he never had calcium in the reaction. The seawater had lots of calcium in the sink, so when he threw it in the sink, that's what started the reaction. And he got a beautiful blue light. And although this picture shows this jellyfish apparently with blue light, this is a completely wrong photograph. The jellyfish produce a green light. And so he knew that there was something wrong. But he had found the protein, and that was pretty good. But he thought about this for a little bit and said, you know, there must be something else. And he went back to all the protein fractions that he had and said, I wonder, uh, I wonder what it is. And he found one fraction that if he took an ultraviolet lamp to that fraction, it glowed green very brightly. And he said, oh, he had a footnote in his 1962 paper about the purification of corn. He said, there's this other thing. It's, I, it's a green protein. We now call that green fluorescent protein, or GFP. And what it does is that it allows the energy that a corn would use when it mixes with calcium that normally would go to blue light, now that energy goes to exciting this protein itself, green, uh, green fluorescent protein, and now it produces the green light that you see in the jellyfish in the wild. But as he showed with his UV light, you don't need any other proteins or calcium or anything else. All you need is GFP, and all you have to do is shine blue light on it or ultraviolet light on it, and you get green light coming out. A fluorescence is the ability of a molecule to absorb light of one wavelength and give off light of another wavelength. Those of you that ever went to discos have an experience of seeing this. It is at this point that I started to completely ignore Paul Brehm's lecture. 
because for the 10 years before the date of this lecture, I had said in every single seminar I gave that I was working on a transparent animal. And of course, as I've shown you, we were looking at the question, we were trying to answer the question, where is a gene turned on? So it really isn't a stretch of the imagination to say, transparent animal, where does the gene turn on? It's a lot of work. I'm losing graduate students because of that. What if we just put this in and it would light up the cells? So I got extremely excited. And as I say, instead of my usual falling asleep in the seminar, I just started fantasizing about the experiments that I would do. And these are my notes from the next day. I started writing down everything. And I found that there was this one guy, Douglas Prasher, who is in the process of cloning the gene, actually the cDNA, for green fluorescent protein. So I called him up. We had a wonderful one-hour conversation about this wonderful protein. And I said, I, I really want to try this. And we set up a collaboration. And it was, it was very exciting. We had this great conversation. He said, I'm not quite finished cloning it. But when I'm finished, I'll call you up and we'll start this project. And I said, terrific. And the phone never rang. And then I got married. This is an important point because my wife at the time was at the University of Utah. I had a sabbatical coming, so I went to work in her lab for nine months because it seemed like that would be the way we could be together. It was during those nine months that Douglas Prasher called. He couldn't get me on the phone and decided I had dropped out of science. So that was the end of it. I never heard from him again. I really was excited about this idea, but I was too embarrassed to call him up and say, hey, how come it's taking you such a long time to clone this gene? So I never called him up. I just thought he had failed and was too embarrassed to call me and tell me, and he thought I dropped out. In September 1992, so quite a number of years later, I had a new graduate student come to my lab, and as most first-year graduate students do, uh, she wanted to do a rotation, a project for just a couple of months in the lab. And she was a very interesting person because she had gotten a master's degree in chemical engineering, and she knew a lot about fluorescence. So I trotted out this whole idea, and I said, you know, you got to try this. It's too bad the guy never cloned the gene, but this is what I'd like. Well, let's look online. The university just put on uh, a, a database so we can check various publications. Let's see if there's any other fluorescent protein that's out there. And the first thing that comes up in our search is Douglas Prasher's paper. He had published that earlier that year the cloning of the gene. He had never gotten in touch with me because he thought I dropped out of science. We ran downstairs to the library, got the journal out, Xeroxed a copy of it, and it had a spectacularly in, uh, important point to it. It's one of the few journal articles that actually had his phone number listed. So I ran back upstairs, we called him up, and I renewed the, the collaboration. We straightened out the fact that we were both, yes, in science and both interested, and yes, I really want to do this experiment. And he sent it to me. Now, we wanted to try this, but we were a little wary of this because there was a, a fundamental problem. There was something very exciting about GFP that people already knew, the few people that were working on it, and that was GFP didn't need any other chemical. All you needed was the protein. That was good. We didn't have to add anything. So we thought it might work. 
However, GFP had a very big problem. And that is that people that had studied GFP had found that in the, uh, in, along the amino acid sequence, so here is the backbone of the protein and the various amino acids coming off here. Most proteins are like this, this linear line of amino acids. GFP, however, had a new wrinkle in this, particularly a wrinkle. It had a, at this point, it had a five-membered ring, so the, the backbone had joined to itself, and none of the people working on it understood how this was made. They hypothesized that this formation of the mature protein needed one, two, ten, who knew how many proteins to make the conversion. And so most people thought GFP is never going to work on its own, and so it's going to be useless as a marker. But we were willing to try. And I gave this to a student, Gia Skirkin, this rotation student. And one month after she entered the lab, this is a page from her lab notebook from October 13, 1992, she was able to put into E. coli the cDNA, and she was able to get strongly fluorescing bacteria. We knew it worked. And this is actually a picture from that very first experiment that she did showing the bacteria fluorescing green. We were unbelievably excited about this. Now, one other interesting thing about her uh, lab notebook page is this uh, comment up at the top where it says that she used the microscope from engineering. This is the old lab she had worked in. And the reason she had to use that microscope is the microscope in my lab was so abysmal that if she had used it, she would have said, this doesn't work. I can't see any fluorescence. And remember I said that people had hypothesized that there could be converting enzymes that were needing. So if you don't see it working, you just say, oh, it's not my fault. I need something else here. So she realized that ours was a really crummy microscope. So she went to this other lab, her old lab, and it worked beautifully. This, of course, presented us with a problem because we didn't have a good microscope to do the experiments, all the other experiments we wanted to do. So um, I tried to use a departmental scope. I got eventually kicked off of that because we were using it too much. And so the solution was I called up several representatives of companies that sold microscopes. And I said, I'm interested in buying a microscope. Um, but you know, I have to make sure that it works for what I'm doing. I wonder if you could bring a loaner microscope by for maybe a month or two, and I could try this out. And so we did all of the experiments on borrowed microscopes. <laughs> and it worked. And eventually, uh, uh, two years later, we published the paper in Science. But this was not without its problems as well. So this is a little story about the vagaries of pub uh, scientific publishing. When we did the work, and we were very excited, we even got it not only in bacteria, but as you see here in worms. Uh, the first thing we did, now science, the journal science is very particular. You send an article to them, and the first thing they do is they give it to a bunch of in-house editors that decide whether it's worthy enough, or worthy enough to go and be reviewed. And if they don't think it's worthy enough, that's the end of it. No one else reads it. So they called me, and, they, and I actually was pretty happy because we had a snappy little title, Green Fluorescent Protein, a New Marker for Gene Expression. And they, they 
called me up and they said, you know, it might be a good paper, but we're not going to send it out for review because of the title. And I said, what? And they said, well, you know, every article in science is new and novel. You can't use that word in the title. So unless you're willing to change the title, it won't go out for review. At which point I changed the title. I should tell you, I do not like to be told what to do. So the title that I exchanged for this one, and the one that went out to the reviewers, is the Aquaria Victoria green fluorescent protein needs no exogenously added component to produce a fluorescent product in prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells. This is actually the entire paper. But that was the title that was done. I sent it out. The reviewers liked it, although one person did say, well, actually, we haven't learned anything new here. But they still accepted it. And then the copy editor called me up and said, you know that title? It's a little long. Can you change it? And I said, yeah, OK. How about this? Green fluorescent protein as a marker for gene expression. Everything was fine. That is until the, we had sent this picture to be on the cover. And the art editor for the cover called me up and said, we have a problem. Do you know what the one color we never like to use on the cover of science is? It's green. Can we change the color of your picture? And I became a little adamant at that point and said, no, that's not, that's not all right. And they fortunately kept it. The third problem we had in publication is we had already given away many clones of the material to other people to try out. And some of them had already gotten back to me and told me that it was successful. So I wanted to put that in the paper too. This person worked, it worked in this organism or in this other organism. This was great to do. And most of these people were really nice. They said, yes, of course you can. You have my permission because you gave me this stuff and this is fine. One person was a problem and made quite a number of demands. This person. Marty is perfectly fine if you want to cite our work, provided you meet the following conditions. You make coffee each Saturday morning for the next two weeks, months, ready by 8.30 a.m. You prepare a special French dinner at the time of your choosing, and you empty the garbage nightly for the next month. This is my wife. <laughs> she, so she claims that I have never paid up on this. I claim that I did, and we're still arguing about this now, and it's been 16 years later. In any case, what did she do that was so important? She did actually the next really exciting thing about GFP. We had shown that if we took the regulatory components of a gene, we could have those turn on GFP. So wherever a gene was turned on, GFP was made, and we could see which cell it was made in, we could see which was green. She was the first person to take the sequence the part of the gene that was for GFP and mixed and, and attached that to a, the DNA making a protein she was interested in. Now what was made was this hybrid or fusion protein and wherever that protein went it would drag GFP along with it like a flashlight waving wherever it was and she, we could follow that. And so she works in Drosophila and flies and this is one of her first pictures. The protein is made in these cells, which are called nurse cells, and then is, is moved into the developing oocyte. 
This is going to get bigger, and the GFP is going to line up here and here. And she was able to see that in these animals. So she made the first protein fusion, and that was an incredibly important discovery. And I wanted to talk about that, so I've been given a lot of grief since then. Uh, GFP is important as a marker for three things, uh, four, four ideas. The first is because it's, a piece of, we, it's encoded by a piece of DNA, we can put that DNA into different organisms. It's been put in all sorts of organisms, bacteria, plants, uh, animals, uh, cells in culture. We can take this and really express it virtually anywhere. And once it's in an organism, then all of its progeny will have it. So we only have to do the prep once. And then from then on, all the subsequent progeny have this in it. The technique, as opposed to the ones I described before, where you had to kill the animals, fix them, permeabilize them, shove chemicals into them, and so on, here you just shine light on them. And you can see what it is. So it's very easy to look at. Third, the molecule is very small, monomeric. That is, only one copy of the protein is needed to produce light. You don't have to make multiple copies. And that means that it can go anywhere in the cell. It's small enough to diffuse anywhere. So you can outline an entire cell. This was not possible for some of the other uh, methods that I talked about. And finally, as I've tried to indicate, because this is in an organism and it's just making a protein like it makes all the other normal proteins that it has, you can see this in a living organism. You can watch this over time. And so for the first time, you see a dynamic change of what's going on as opposed to a static view about life. And lots of people have then picked this up and used this, but before they did, it needed to be improved, and the third person from the triumvirate that got the Nobel, Roger Chen at UC San Diego, uh, improved GFP. He made it uh, so that it, he could change the color, he could make it uh, a more a brighter fluorescence, he actually eventually made a whole series of colors that he actually named after various fruits. I think this is M. cherry, this is orange, lemon. No, that might be banana. That's blueberry and so on. I think this is melon. Uh, not really sure. And he made all these different colors, and having a lot of different colors mean you can do a lot more things as well. So we have a lot of different things that one can use. He also was uh, really one of the first people to make little molecular mo uh, machines using GFP, and it takes, uh, using these fluorescent proteins. And so one of the things that he has, he did, was called a chameleon, it was a calcium indicator. And it takes advantage of a very interesting property of fluorescent molecules. And that is, if you have a fluorescent molecule, this one giving off blue light if you excite it with ultraviolet, this being excited by blue light and then giving off yellow. If the molecules are far apart and you shine ultraviolet light on here, this won't produce anything. This will produce blue light. But in this construct that he made, if calcium is around, it'll bind in here, these little red dots. This all comes together and brings these two parts close together. Now when you shine ultraviolet light onto the blue, Instead of producing blue light, it transfers its energy to this molecule. And once this molecule is excited, it produces yellow light. So by looking at how much blue light and how much yellow light is produced, you can actually tell how much calcium is around. So this is a way of 
having an inherited way of monitoring the amount of calcium in the cell. There's been others for pH in the cells and for enzyme, various enzyme activities. In fact, I think I have a slide here of a couple of other models. Here's the calcium uh, thing. And when they're close together, this transfer is called FRET for Forster Resonance Energy Transfer. But here's a case, again, calcium brings them together. You see more yellow. Here we're trying to measure whether this protein can, or peptide can be broken. So now we have them close together. You get the yellow produced. It gets cut. Now they're far apart. You just see blue. Here are two proteins that are thought to come together. When they come together, now these two parts come together, and again, you get yellow instead of blue. So it's a way of monitoring whether two proteins actually normally come together. And people have made hundreds of different constructs based on this sort of uh, idea. So it's been a very useful tool. It's been used in lots of different organisms. Here's a little gallery of, of some. Here's the worm that we work on, fruit fly, mice, canola plants, zebrafish, and this is Alba, the GFP bunny. Alba was produced by a French company for the uh, Brazilian artist, he now lives in Chicago, Eduardo Koch, who wanted to take Alba around to various art installations he was responsible for to promote a discussion of the connection between art and technology and art and science. So he used that, and Alba was also a family pet for many years. It died a few years ago. Here are some examples of some cells. I think these are human cells in culture. These are um, Drosophila cells. This is a Arabidopsis plant. This is a mouse Purkinje cell. Uh, and you see that GFP is not only in the cell body, but in all these very fine ramifications of this cell. So it's been used by lots of people. As far as we can figure out, uh, as, as far as I can figure out, it's been used. There's about 30,000 papers that have that have that come up in a search of the PubMed database. But since most people never say GFP or fluorescent protein in their title or abstract or keywords or anything else, I think it's at least 60,000 and probably more in basically 15 years. So I find that pretty astonishing that people have done this. And lots of people have contributed to the improvement of GFP and the development of many uses. Uh, I want to show you two movies made by... Uh, woman Rosalind Silverman Gavrilla. I think she made these as a graduate student. Uh, she was in Canada. And what she's looking at is, this is uh, the embryo of uh, Drosophila, of fruit flies. And what she is looking, so I should tell you a little bit about the development of embryos of fruit flies. There are no, in the early development, no cell boundaries. All there are are nuclei, and the nuclei continue to divide. Now when the nucleus divides, or when the chromosomes divide, the nuclear envelope dissolves away. The chromosomes have to be separated from one another. And then new nuclear envelopes develop around the chromosomes that have separated. And this is done, in, as you will see, in a synchronous fashion. Here she's used GFP to label the protein in the spindle, the part of the molecule that will, or the part of the cell that will take the chromosomes apart from one another. So let me just start the movie. And you'll get an idea about what it means. Oops, that was not what I wanted to see. There we go. 
Uh, what I mean by a dynamic view of biology. Here we go. And you see that they're all doing this synchronously. All the nuclei are dividing. All the chromosomes are dividing and being separated at the same time. There's one more time. Now, the next thing I'm going to show is not one of her movies, but it's the lead into her movie. And that's this painting, which is Starry Night. And the reason I bring this up is because she's entitled her next movie, Starry Night, uh, as a tribute, I think, to this picture. In this case, what she used is GFP that had attached to it a peptide that would direct GFP to go into the nucleus. Now, the nuclei are being formed and coming apart, reforming, coming apart, reforming again. And now she's done something a little different. Instead of just look, making a black and white movie, she's false color coded it. So the brighter everything is, the more GFP is there, the redder it will be. Then comes yellow, and then eventually, if there's a little bit, it'll be blue. So basically, rainbow colors, red to yellow to green to blue. And to sort of false color, give you an idea about where things are. Uh, so here is the same embryo in Drosophila dividing. You see the nuclei fell apart. Now everything is all over the cell. Now the nuclei start to reform. And they do it in a wave, not synchronously. And then they start coming apart. It's all over the embryo again. And the nuclei are going to reform a second time, another time. Now, by using different colors, Josh Sains and Jeff Lickman at Harvard have developed what they call Brainbow, a way of using four colors but expressed in different amounts so they can get basically a different color for every nerve cell that this is expressed in. And so they're labeling all the cells in the brain with a different color and following their outgrowth and so on. And these are some of their pictures for that. People sometimes ask me whether this has been put into people. It's been put into human cells and culture. The only example I know of of where it's in people is from this movie, uh, where you see the jellyfish. And an unusual extraction method for the GFP, where you just stick a hypodermic in and it comes right out. <laughs> if Shimamura had known this, it would have, he would have had a much easier time. And then somehow there's human chromosomes. I've never understood that. But you can see here it says green bioluminescence. And aquaria, which is actually the original name of this extremely rapid response. And this is used in this movie as the basis. I don't know if you saw the, the date, 1965, three years after Shimamura's paper, uh, to explain uh, the green color of the Hulk <laughs> in the movie by Ang Lee. Actually, I know the writer for this movie, James Shamus. His daughter and my daughter went to elementary school together. He's on the Columbia faculty. And I went to him and I said, oh, wow, why did you, how did you know about my work? This is fantastic. You, you, you put this in, in the movie. This is great. And he said, what work do you do? <laughs> Turned out that there was a graduate student or an undergraduate from MIT that was working on the set. And he suggested 
that they explain the green color of the Hulk by using GFP, which I'm actually quite proud of. <laughs> okay, I want to tell you just very quickly some of the things we've done in my own research to give you an idea of the range of things one can do with this. We can look at where genes are expressed, as I've said before. We can ask by using different colors if two genes, EGL44, EGL46, are actually expressed in the same cell, and we get that they are. We can look at where a protein is made. Is it continuously along this process, or as I show here, in this dotted position? We can also use this, once we label a cell, we can then study it. One way we like to study things is to find mutants that are defective in that cell. So nerve cells, there's a certain number of cells made, they're in particular positions, they grow out in a particular pattern, they branch in a particular pattern, and so now, because we have those cells labeled with GFP, we can look among the mutants we create and ask, are there any with more cells or less cells, or cells that grow a process in the wrong place, or cells that don't have a, uh, the branches or have too many branches. In other words, we can start to study these fundamental processes of how nerve cells grow, and this is, of course, interesting for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of bit, that if we know more about how nerve cells grow and develop, we can maybe get some understanding of what we should be able to do for things like spinal cord injury or other problems with the nervous system. We can also isolate cells from the animal because they're the labeled one. There's a machine called a fluorescence activated cell sorter. You take any collection of cells, you break them apart into individual cells and you pour them in the machine and the fluorescent ones go into one test tube and everything else goes in the other and now you have a basically pure population of the cells you're interested in and do a whole series of studies on those. We've also those, done that in our lab. We've done a couple of other things, but I just want to end with one final example, and then I'll give some conclusions about all of this. Lynn Regan is a professor of chemistry at Yale, and she did an experiment that, frankly, just completely astonished me. The first part of the experiment is maybe not too astonishing. She took GFP and she cut it in half. And when she cut it in half, it stopped working. That's not a big surprise. You cut almost everything in half and it stops working. But what she did, which was really an amazing, is she put these domains, which are called leucine zipper domains, on each of the halves of the protein. And she found that because these would come together, they allowed the two halves of the molecule to come together and you got a functional protein. It started to glow green again. So she was able to reconstitute the functional GFP by bringing the two halves together by using these domains. Now several people have been excited about this result and it is an exciting result because now we can start to look at, again, proteins that we're interested in. Do these two proteins come together and join together? If they do come together, then you should be able, if they're attached to the halves of GFP, you should be able to get fluorescence. And a lot of people have looked at it, substituting their pair of proteins for these red and blue cylinders here. My lab got interested in a different question, and that question was, well, we were a little dismayed by the fact that while we were able to do all these wonderful experiments on the cells that we were interested in, the cells needed, needed for touch, 
other people couldn't do all the same experiments. And the reason was there was no regulatory element for any gene that was specific for the cells these other people were studying. It actually turns out of all the nerve cells in the animal, there are these gene regulatory elements that allow specific cell types to be labeled for only 20% of the cells. For the rest of the 80% you can't really study because they get labeled and some other cell get, gets labeled. But we reasoned that maybe if we use two regulatory elements, one turning on the production of this half and the other turning on the production of this half, the only cells that would light up were the ones that had both of these things expressed. And so we tried that experiment using exact these two genes and you can see there's in lots of cells but only this pair of cells are the ones that fluoresce and it worked. We were able to label these cells. So now we had a much more specific way of labeling cells and it's allowed us to, to change things. We've also made some other modifications of GFP. We've made one GFP that uh, is very short-lived. So only when the gene is turned on do you see it. Once the gene is turned off, it goes away. And that's good because now you can see when a gene is, not only where a gene is on, but when that gene is on as well in a, an organism. So let me tell you some of the conclusions I draw from GFP. And the first one of that is that scientific progress is really cumulative. It was really a joy to actually share this, actually it's nice to be part of any prize like this to tell you the truth, but it was really nice to share a prize with these other two scientists because our own individual contributions really were not as important as all of our contributions together. And it's not just the three of us, it's the hundreds and actually thousands of people that have added value to this by using their own ingenuity. And this is how I see science progressing. It's not the lone scientist working, it's people working together and adding previous knowledge. In a sense, it's sort of like GFP itself. GFP absorbs light of one wavelength and gives off light of another wavelength. We take in knowledge from other scientists, change it, modify it, and give off additional knowledge from that. So it's maybe not a bad analogy for what we do as scientists. The other thing I think is important here is that the students and the postdocs are the real innovators in the lab. It's not the head of the lab that's the, really in a, the real innovator. When GFP, when we first published on GFP, or actually we let people know about GFP, the heads of labs called me up and invariably their first sentence was, you know, my postdoc or, you know, my graduate student told me that you have something, I'm not sure, it's called GFP. Uh, they told me about this. It sounds pretty, tell me about this. So it was the graduate students and the postdocs that were driving what was going on in the lab. Certainly that's what happens in my lab. And so these were the innovators. I want to say one other thing about the people in the lab. There was a, an amazing, um, at first, well, it's sort of depressing and good at the same time. Some of these people said to me, do you know if GFP has been turned on and then they named their favorite organism? And it was the beginning of this, so most of the time the answer was no, I don't think it's been used in that yet. And I expected them to get very excited and say, fantastic, now I'm going to be the first one to do this. But they didn't. A lot of these people said, or some of the people said, Oh, that's too bad. I'll wait until somebody else does it. 
that was really depressing. Well, it was depressing for a while, and then I realized that actually what that said is there's actually not that much competition out there. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere. Finally, I want to point out that basic research is essential these days, and it's very important to always keep this in mind. It's, in fact, the engine that drives innovation and actually helps us to understand human disease and gives us improvements in agriculture and in industry. But it's basic research that, that's important. Especially over the last 10 years, I think there's been an incredible emphasis by some university administrators, by uh, government officials, and by clini clinical researchers that the important thing we should be doing these days is to have more translational research. Translational research is the idea that information we glean from the laboratory should now be applied to clinical problems. And while there's nothing wrong with that, it's the emphasis that I think is wrong. NIH recently had a series of what they called challenge grants, 100 different topics that they wanted people to ask, to present proposals from, for. Of the 100 proposal topics, 98 of them were translational research, and two of them were basic research. Ultimately, this is self-defeating, because you need to have the basic research to be able to translate. If you don't have anything to translate, that's sort of the end of it. And I think right now, it's the, the emphasis has been wrong. We definitely need basic research. Look at what I've talked about today. We have learned so much from the fact that Osama Shimamura asked a question that has absolutely nothing to do with human health. And that is, why do some organisms produce light? And in answering that, he made the accidental discovery of a protein that's fluorescent. Now, this turns out to be an extremely useful molecule for a lot of experiments trying to understand basic science that actually does have relevance to human health. Let me give you one example. If you're interested in trying to combat HIV, then it's important that as you're thinking about what happened in HIV to know what happens to the molecule, the virus, when there is an infection. So for example, if you think that the virus is released in the body, then you'd say, ah, you know, if we make an antibody against that virus, we'll be able to capture it and neutralize it and get rid of it. Because we think that it's like almost all the other viruses we know about, it gets released from the cells. So investigators, uh, one investigator at Mount Sinai in, in New York did an experiment. He engineered HIV so that it had every cell that it infected was green with green fluorescent protein. So he could follow where it went. And it wasn't that the cell broke open and let all the virus out and then that went into other cells. The cells, one cell, the infected cell, and the other cell, the non-infected cell, basically came up to each other. One kissed the other, and the stuff was injected into the cell. Never went outside. Changes the entire concept of how you then try to control this by looking at it. But the only way he could do the experiment really was to be able to have a way of looking at the virus and seeing how this was working in real time. So basic research, I think, is essential, whether it's on worms or on other organisms. And in keeping with this, let me say my last point, which is that 
we spend a lot of time talking about model organisms, fruit flies, mice, worms, uh, bacteria, particularly E. coli. These have served us very well. They've told us a lot about basic biology, but by no means all of basic biology. The jellyfish has shown all these differences. C. elegans, this nematode that we work on, has not been an organ, was not until recently a model organism. It was just a strange organism that people were working on. And we've learned an enormous amount from studying that organism's biology. And so it really is something that we can't just study these model organisms. There's a wealth of information out there. There's a wealth of fascination out there. And we should be taking advantage of that. Thank you very much. his exercise. <laughs> um, hi, it was a very good lecture. Uh, can you give us some more examples of um, a time that GFP was used, that, like in an experiment that you thought was really interesting or discovered something interesting and new? Just throwing a few examples out there. You, you know, I, I, let me give you one example. There, there's, there's numerous examples. People have used it in, to look in mice, as they did with this HIV example that I gave to look at the nature of metastasis of cancer. Uh, in the worms that uh, I study, one of the things we're very interested in is the basic question is, how do nerve cells know which other nerve cells to connect to, and how do they make those connections? And it's been possible to put GFP on a protein that just goes to the connection between nerve cells, synapses, and then look for mutants that are defective in synapse formation, that can't make the right connections. I find that fascinating. Let me give you one example. This, this is an example that hasn't quite worked, but it, I think there's a lesson in it anyway. And why I like this is that every once in a while I encounter somebody that says, you know, this is scientific information. Isn't this dangerous? Isn't this going to be used as a weapon? Isn't this going to be a horrible thing to use? It's a jellyfish protein. But people will ask this anyway. And I get, a, a, I'm a little surprised at that because their attitude is this is something that has a potential always to be dangerous. Knowledge is going to be dangerous. And all they can think about is a problem. There's a guy named Bob Burlage who was at Oak Ridge National Labs and then uh, went to University of Wisconsin in, Mad in uh, Milwaukee he had a wonderful idea. Unfortunately, the wonderful idea has only worked once, but I'll, it's thinking about things in a very different way. You know, genes, to be very simplistic about it, have two parts. The part that says, this is what the protein is that's made, and the other part, the regulatory part, that says, make this in this place or under these conditions and so on. That regulatory part has been found for a, a gene from a bacterium that's very interesting. Because that will the, what will turn the gene on 
is the explosive TNT. So wherever TNT is, that gene will be turned on. And if that gene controls the making of GFP, then those bacteria will glow green in the presence of TNT. So Bob Burledge knew about this, and so he made a bacterial line that would turn on in the presence of TNT. You might think that's a little strange, but he had a really interesting idea. He went to a field, I think it was 300 meters square, 300 meters by 300 meters, that had in it buried at various places that he did not know about five landmines that, that were not connected but had the TNT in them that is normally in, the explosive that is normally in landmines. He sprayed the field with the bacteria and then went back after I think a couple of weeks with an ultraviolet light and in that first experiment was able to find all five landmines. I think that's pretty neat. I think that's pretty wonderful to be able to do that. Unfortunately, he couldn't really reproduce it. There have been other people that have used plants and they want to seed a field with plants that have the same uh, activatable GFP in the presence of explosives so that when the plants grow up, now they're going to fluoresce. And so one can see that there have been a, a couple, uh, at least one company uh, in the United States, and I know there's a, a different company in Denmark that has tried to sort of produce this as a way of getting rid of what's really one of the most horrible weapons of war because it hits innocent people, mainly children. So that's one of my favorite examples, and yet we're not quite there with that yet. It needs a little more work. People have used this to monitor things. If you have a filtration system, for example, in a drug company, that you want to make sure that none of the microorganisms get out, the easiest way of doing that is to seed things with a little GFP and make sure that your filters work because after the filters you don't have any green fluorescing bacteria that got through. Some people have used it for that. So it's been used in industry as a marker. People are now testing, um, are now testing uh, viruses for gene therapy. And the first test, I mean, the first test eventually in, first in mice and then in monkeys, the first test that they do in these organisms to see if the viruses are doing what they're supposed to do, that is delivering the gene to the organism, is to ask the question, can it deliver green fluorescent protein? So it's the canary in the mine. It's the one that tells them it's worked or not. So all of these are, are various examples. I hope that's, that's at least some. Yes, in the back. Um, so GFP was obviously a breakthrough in tracking gene expression, um, but with most discoveries in science, that's never the end of the road. You can always take it farther. Um, so I'm just curious, I guess in biologists' um, wildest fantasies, what does the ideal gene marker look like? How could GFP get even better? It could be smaller. It could be very small. It could be something we could add very quickly, and people are actually working on this right now. One of the things that people want to have, we don't want to give this to people. 
Okay, one of the saddest things is when the Nobel Prize, for me, when the Nobel Prize was announced, um, there were a couple of press releases that went out and referring to the work that had been done in mice, looking at metastases and how they moved around, cancer moved around in the mice. Uh, the press releases said, and this has been used to track cancers. And a man wrote me an email uh, about two or three weeks later and said, I've looked at all of your papers and I can't find the one that tracks cancer. My wife is having the third recurrence of her cancer and the doctors say they don't know where it is. This is just bad publicity, it is wrong. But the idea of being able to have a way to bring GFP or another fluorescent marker that would mark cancer cells in a person is right now one of the holy grails of this. Can we do things to mark it so that a surgeon, when she goes into someone to, ex to get out the cancer, make sure that she has all of it so she can get that? So that, these are very important things that people want to do. It would be nicer if it were smaller. Um, smaller it is, the less chance that it's going to interfere with things. For the most part, GFP doesn't interfere with the normal functioning of the proteins, but every once in a while, we have to be a little bit wary of it. So having something smaller would be better, and there are people that are trying that. Yes, back. I'm Alexey Gun. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at chemistry department. And what I like about JFP, it also created a lot of very nice visual pictures, photographs, and you know, in the movies and popular culture, like Avatar, we see all this fluorescent, and what, what do you think about um, kind of social impact, kind of maybe cultural impact of these pictures of fluorescence? Uh, just was curious about your opinion. I, I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Uh, so do you think uh, there would be some cultural implications that you know you can make a home animals which can glow or some kind of interesting well, obviously the main cultural benefit of this is the vast amount of knowledge that we've already learned. Um, if you mean, you know, will people use GFP to have sort of very strange tattoos? No, I'm not really sure about that. Um, every once in a while somebody calls me up and says, you know, you have something to do with GFP. I, I have a great idea. St. Patrick's Day is coming up. <laughs> I would like to make green fluorescent beer. What do you think about that idea? And I try to convince them that yes, you could make green fluorescent yeast and they could probably release it in the beer. It's that formation of that unusual bond in the peptide and I don't know how that's dissolved and what that does to people and I certainly would not want to drink it uh, myself. <laughs> so I... Um, I sort of try to convince them that that's not a good idea. Uh, on the other hand, um, I don't know if I've really answered your question, so I apologize. Well, maybe but, as a follow-up, do you feel satisfied or dissatisfied about, um, as a basic researcher who's done this work, at the quality of press and media coverage of research in general, your research, things related to GFP? What's your evaluation of press coverage? Well, I've already told you one example that I thought was quite horrible of trying to make something 
that was even, you know, maybe feeling more relevant to people, that we have to talk about it always in terms of disease. And I think that's a problem, or we always have to say, this is going to make a lot of money for something. The knowledge to me is the exciting thing. The discovery was the fun. That first day when we saw GFP bacteria was really wonderful. I actually had an idea that worked. Do you have any idea how exciting it is when finally an idea works out for you? That's just really wonderful. So um, I, don't, I don't personally have this thing of feeling that the publicity has to make it then bigger than it is. I think it's been astonishing what it is. I will say that GFP, in my opinion, is one of the easiest things about science to explain to people. You say, it is a flashlight <laughs> that allows you to look in the cell and you see what it is. And I think people understand what it is. And I think for the most part, the, ex the explanations in the press have been pretty good. It's only when they go a little bit overboard and try to sell this as something to do with medicine and breakthrough in uh, ways that I think are unnecessary. But for the most part, I've been pretty happy with it. I mean, people have been pretty good to me. Yes? Um, you're one of, oh, sorry. Um, the first, or one of the movies you showed, the, spin, the spindles were synchronized, but then when you showed the nuclear membrane formation it sort of progressed. Um, can you explain why? Uh, I can't explain why, but it obviously invites an immediate question of why are these two things quite different in terms of how these things come apart. That apparently, maybe it's a process coming from the cells, from one part of the embryo, and it has to sweep forward, but then once that happens, the source of the signal for the chromosomes to align and then come apart Obviously, it's something more uniform in the cell. This is hand-waving. I'm not really giving you an answer for this because I don't know. But one could imagine now, to step, one would like to go at and look at what happens in the distribution of other proteins that might be regulating these events, the uh, CDKs and other things that are important for cell cycle control that you'd like to look at. You might want to look now where these proteins are. And you can do that with GFP. One, a person in the back. I don't know where the microphone is. Oh, it's there. So GFP has been used to tag proteins to look for, uh, to examine the protein localization within the cells, correct? I was wondering if, if there has been cases where tagging of a protein with GFP actually hinders the normal function of the protein? It does. There are several cases where, because you have to put the GFP someplace in the protein, you have to attach it somewhere. So you either put it at the beginning or at the end, usually. But there are some proteins that the beginning part is very important, and putting something else there interferes with that, or something at the end. In fact, that very first experiment that my wife did got, talked about a way around that. In an organism like fruit flies, where one can get mutants that are defective in a protein that you're interested in. And this is what she used, a mutant that did not have the protein. She then put in the fusion protein of the protein with GFP into that animal and found that that was able to provide what was missing in the animal. So it could replace it. 
since there was no good protein to begin with, that said the protein she was looking at with the GFP was actually functioning correctly. And that gives you a lot more confidence that it's going to the right place and it's doing the right thing. So there are ways of testing whether it's working or not, but sometimes you can't do that. And that is a problem, that it might actually be interfering and causing difficulty. For the most part, it hasn't been the case. Every once in a while, you may not be able to get what we call rescue. And sometimes you have to go to somewhat heroic lengths. Sometimes people have to take GFP and not put it at either end, but actually in a loop inside the protein that where it can stick out and work. And sometimes that works. And sometimes there's proteins that are just too difficult to add the GFP to. And so we're not able, people are not able to study it. But those are actually very rare. Good question. Sure. Um, I think that uh, fluorescent, uh, fluorescent proteins have also had a, a huge impact on microscopy and uh, microscopy itself. And so, uh, do, do you think there is uh, still room for improvement for t to to achieve higher resolutions in, in microscopy? And what what are the challenges uh, in terms of, of biochemistry? Uh, this right now is a very exciting time in microscopy. I should say that. Um, Soon after the Nobel was announced, a couple months after that, I was invited to go and, and talk to uh, the people at the Marine Biology Lab in Woods Hole, the, their board. And at that meeting was one of the heads of the Zeiss Microscope Company in the United States. And he said that GFP rejuvenated their fluorescent microscope activities, that they were basically going to drop it, that there was not enough real call for fluorescent microscopes, and then suddenly everyone wanted a fluorescent microscope. So it just changed their business entirely. At which point I asked him if I could have a microscope. Uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't work. I'm actually trying Nikon now. But uh, in any case, um, it has changed microscopy because people now want to look, and they want to look at a faster time rate, a time resolution. All of these uh, fret-based things that I've showed you require looking, uh, you know, using fluorescence. You want to be able to do it faster. There's been an incredible increase in the ability of cameras to take pictures, to uh, characterize things. These have not all resulted just because of GFP, but fluorescence has really taken on sort of a a, a real life of its own, of being able to use it in a variety of ways. And so people have been using it now in many different ways, and there's lots of other molecules that are very interesting for this. There's, there's quantum dots, there are other dyes that people have that they can use for a variety of, of, of experiments. So there's a lot of things. People are starting to look at these high-resolution microscope, light microscopes, to look at various events, getting down to really small molecular detail. And so there's been, there really has been a real change in the microscopes, and I expect there will be more as people try to increase the resolution, try to increase the speed of capture of the images, and be able to look more directly at uh, what we call the Z direction, to be able to look deeper and so on into the molecules. One change, let me give you one example of a change. Uh, you, probably almost everyone in this room, at least when they were a kid, took a flashlight and put it against their hand. 
and saw this red glow on the other side, but you didn't see your bones, right? Well, it turns out that you can get some light actually through, as you can see from that flashlight experiment, except you have no resolution, right? It's, you can't see everything. Everything's diffuse coming out of there. It turns out that most of the light, you know, blue and yellow and green, that really can't penetrate the skin very well. You can't look too deep into it. So even if I had some fluorescent protein inside me, you couldn't tell. However, if you have a fluorescent protein that gets excited not by high energy wavelengths like ultraviolet or blue, but actually have a protein that gets excited by red and infrared, those penetrate the skin much more. Just like in that flashlight, you saw the red going through your hand. Now you can actually look deeper into organisms. So organisms that we normally would think of as not being transparent. Being able to look at the brain in an intact animal. A mouse that expressed GFP in the nerve cells in that brain. Now with infrared light activating the proteins, we can actually start to see these. And other methods that people have developed to photon microscopy and so on, allow people to excite with these, with light or with uh, radiant energy that actually can get deeper into tissues. And that's been another great improvement. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right.